Hi, and welcome to the final episode of season three of our podcast. I'm Mary Abazia, and with me is Tom Spitali and Sean Wellam. Hi, guys. Hello, Mary. Hey, Mary. Hi, Sean. So we are calling, we have called this past season, The Marketing Casebook. And it's because we figured out that there's so many stories swirling around us that um, are interesting and very relevant, especially for some of our, our business-to-business or B2B clients, that we wanted to take time to dissect it a bit and figure out what the lessons might be for for you, for, our, for, for people that are trying to figure it out. So, Sean, what is this uh, episode about? The season finale is episode 10, The Case of the Divergent Paths. Okay, so, Tom, what is this all about? Well, I'm glad it's the season finale. Sean cannot seem to keep from cracking up with his uh, radio announcer role the last couple of weeks there. So it's probably... Oh, it's just D-Mob happy, Tom. I'm just D-Mob happy. That's, that's me. <laughs> well, the case of the divergent paths is the story of Phaeton, Volkswagen's Phaeton and Toyota's Lexus. And, and we're particularly proud of this story because nobody ever put these two cases together until we wrote our book, The Accidental Marketer. And what we realized as we were talking about case studies this season was that even though in season one, we talked a lot about the chapters of our book, we didn't really unpack this story um, in, in a very detailed way. So that's kind of what we want to do today. Um, just to kind of start the discussion and see where it takes us, I'm going to just talk a little bit about the, the beginning of both of these brands. Um, the idea in relating uh, these two cases is the fact that the Volkswagen Phaeton is one of the greatest failures of modern uh, automotive history, while Ty- Toyota's Lexus is one of the greatest success stories. And really, both companies were trying to do similar things. But the very first thing that happened was uh, where these divergent paths emerged. And it seemed like everything that the two brands did from the beginning was exactly the opposite. So the, the very first thing that Ferdinand Piesch did with the Phaeton, which was his pet project at Volkswagen, was to immediately draw up a list of things, uh, features, functionality that he wanted the car to have and hand that to his engineering staff without much, if any, consumer input, whereas the first thing that the executive team that was creating the Lexus did was send engineers to Laguna Beach, California to follow affluent customers and potential uh, luxury car buyers around to see what their lives were like. And so that's that started the whole thing, and it just went very, very differently for both brands from there. First question I want to ask is, why does this kind of thing happen, like with Ferdinand Piesch? Why do, do some executives kind of eschew marketing and market research and just do the kind of thing that Ferdinand Piesch did by just saying, hey, I think I know this market. I know, I, I know automotive uh, uh, customer needs. So let's just start building this car. Why does that happen? Sean, any thoughts? Well, it's, I think it's a fine line between uh, confidence and, and arrogance. And, and you can be one side of that line and do just great. Look at the Steve Jobs. You know, you, you could say the same thing with, uh, with, with iPads or, or the iPod 
or even the iPhone. You know, big departures from the core of the business and done with little market research, done mainly on the basis that people will want this. This is the sort of thing I know people will buy. I have the confidence to to pretty much bet the ranch on this. So that's an example of confidence paying off. And if you step over into arrogance and you're sort of thinking, I'm an engineer, I can make a really great car, I can develop a product that is really better than anything out there at the moment, and you ignore all of the intricacies of how people perceive and that includes all the brand elements and the and the, the general perceptions of what, what truly drives buyer behavior. But if you think it's all about product performance, then you 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 focus on that. And it depends very much on your background. But I guess that the, the key thing is that, that the focus is is much more on the product and very little on the customer. And that's how these mistakes can happen. But like I say, it's it's a fine line. It's not as if there's a there's a there's a clear demarcation here. You know, sometimes confidence can great products, arrogance, and sometimes lead you down a, a different path entirely. Degrees of degrees of difference. Yeah, Sean, I like what you're saying about that. And you know, when I think about companies that are launching new products, um, you know, if, if somebody had asked in the early stages you know, do you want an iPad? They probably would have said no. So the vision of a leader to say, I know we can do this. But I think in VW's case, um, there's a thing called brand elasticity and they should have and did eventually find out how strong that brand was. So, and it sounds a little elusive, but it really is very, it's very real in people's minds. So even if you don't know how people are going to feel about a a new product, you certainly need to know where you're starting from with the way they think about your brand. And in VW's case, you know, obviously if somebody said, what do you think about VW? Uh, they would have said, oh, it's, you know, the people's car. And the people's car is very different than a high-end 80,000 euro car. So they would have at least known that they had a huge disconnect. They may have been able to address it better, but they didn't measure that up front. They measured it on the backside when they finally said, why, you know, why didn't you buy a uh, a beautiful new Phaeton? And, you know, people said, I didn't want for my neighbors to think I couldn't afford a BMW. Yeah. I didn't want my neighbors to think it. So they they would have that information would not have been new information. They would have they would have known that there was that perception, but they didn't address any of that because they were on Tom like you said they had that list. It was a cool list and we were going to build that baby. So it was you know. <laughs> I guess it comes down to it's not just the brand the brand in itself, is it? It's it's that it's how people value certain products yeah. like cars are a very particular type of, of product. And you there's a whole range of things you want your car to do for you, least of which is get you from A to B, right? It's to sit on your drive, it's to sit in the parking lot at work and to demonstrate how successful you are maybe or how sporty you are or how different you are. You know, It's an extension of personality in the same way that nobody buys a Rolex to tell the time. Nobody buys a, a luxury car just to get from A to B. There's a lot more to it than that, and if you if you don't understand your product mind, not every product is, is is as rich in terms of different meanings as as personal jewelry and, and cars. But it's understanding also that that how are those decisions made by buyers? What are they really buying? Yeah. You know, what it, what is it that's that's that's. Well, I think them up? the biggest difference between Sean, your analogy of um, 
Steve Jobs and in, 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 in this situation with Piesh is that um, in certain industries like automotive, uh, the, the information, the research, the ability to, I guess, more accurately pick customers' minds is there. It's an established market. And certainly, like every other market, it is rapidly changing. But people really can talk to you about what they want out of a car, especially a luxury car. Whereas with Jobs, I think the genius of Jobs was the fact that he knew that people really couldn't articulate very well what they wanted out of a piece of technology that, and, and, and really almost like an entire industry that hadn't even been invented yet. And he was really good about an, anticipating that, which is required in uh, you know, new technology markets and markets where, where the product is absolutely brand new. But in automotive, you know, what I think is interesting is that by talking to customers, Lexus was able to ascertain something else that people don't talk a lot about in this, in this whole case. And that is they understood that luxury car buyers wanted a complete experience, um, including, you know, how they bought and how they were serviced. And so they, at incredible expense, created a whole dealer um, a, um, network separate from that of Toyota. So there wasn't any brand confusion. And Volkswagen didn't do any of that. They, if you wanted to buy a Phaeton, you went to the Volkswagen dealership. And there was the same sales force, same service personnel. There was, you know, not only was the brand not standing for luxury, there was really no separation between, you know, the the great unwashed who were buying Volkswagens, you know, as a status-seeking luxury car arrogant person might think. Well, you know, a little bit. I, I want to say something about that, though. It's very interesting because in a warped kind of way, VW was also thinking about the customer experience. Um, they built this beautiful plant that apparently it's it's a transparent factory. It's calm. It's orderly. It is like the showcase. It's like being in an operating room. Um, so they did think about experience, but it wasn't, you know, at the car buying experience. It was more, will people come and see our German manufacturing, you know, facilities and how it, how it is built almost like uh, one of the really high-end cars. So I thought that was kind of funny. It was a very different type of uh, approach to experience, perhaps. <laughs> I know we say, we say that, that automotive is different and it, and it is technology, but that just makes me think of an interesting fusion, which is Elon Musk and Tesla. I wonder what sort of research they did in terms of a, you know a, a pretty radical concept in many ways, and it's in the automotive. And I mean, I, I honestly don't know a great deal about the the financials of the business, but I, I, it's pretty successful, right? It's it's still going over there, isn't it? It's 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 okay. I mean, I think it's it's largely um, funded by uh, stock equity, right? And and the in the future of Tesla is is really largely leveraged on the fact that a lot of people bid the the stock price up while they continue to work on their profitability and, and, and trying to, you know, create a Tesla for the masses, so to speak, and move it, move it downstream a little bit. So it's more um, affordable and less of a novelty, but mm. you would hope that indeed, you know, they're, they're, they're doing some research or, or that Elon, Elon Musk, you know, possesses the, the, the Steve, 
Jobs uh, gene <laughs> for anticipating what's going on. But you, the question I, I have for, uh, for us to discuss is, why do so few CEOs, you know, we have this, this example of, of, of Ferdinand Piesh, but it's certainly not, um, it's certainly not unusual that CEOs under, undervalue, underrate strategic marketing. We see it all the time in our work. Why is that? Is it background? I mean, I don't know. Let me answer the question honestly. I don't know, Tom. But I think maybe, is it that, you know, people in certain industries, in, in automotive, you rise through the ranks of engineering and design, and in other businesses, maybe through finance and places like that, which which are given very much to a retrospective look at things or a very technical look at things. And and maybe if you if you have a background in customer in some way, whether that's through a sales channel or through marketing or product development, maybe... If you if you could get all that data, you would see some correlations between that. I mean, purely speculative on my part, but but I'm guessing it's it's an area that I would I would look at. Yeah, at least. I think the higher you rise in the organization, that you feel that pressure, and it's normal as you feel more and more pressure to kind of go inward, even as a senior leadership group. When when Wall Street, at least in you know where that applies, people are feeling like, oh, we need to perform, so let's come out with something amazing. And that's why we always think it's pretty cool when a company takes the opposite, that outside in view and says, wait a minute, let's, we're really in trouble. Let's go outside. It's, I think it's, it's counterintuitive to do that, but when they do, oh my gosh, I mean, you know, we, we see just some wonderful companies pull ahead, but it's only when they, you know, and at the heart of it is segmentation. When a company, even at a very senior level goes, wait a minute, let's, let's think about this. And I wonder with Volkswagen, if they did come to that realization, because they are doing fairly well in China now with the revived Phaeton. It's now the uh, Phaeton, and uh, it's addressing uh, the high-end Chinese market. But Tom, you, you said a bit more about the insights on that market, too. Well, the research that they did in trying to figure out how can we, you know, amortize some of the investment that we had in this brand because it failed so quickly was to find uh, some, some way to position this car. And what they have apparently found in the Chinese market is that there is a very unusual segment uh, that maybe doesn't exist in a lot of places around the world. And that is uh, a segment of status, uh, I, sh- I shouldn't call them status seeking. It's actually non-status seeking luxury car buyers. People who want to own a luxury car, but don't want to show off. Um, that's not a very sizable segment I know in the United States. I don't know, Sean, about the, the UK and in, in, in Europe. But well, the home uh, of the Bentley and the Rolls Royce. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you, you've got... Um, You've got a situation where they've geographically and culturally found a fit for the brand. And now, you know, maybe they can get some of their money back. <laughs> Tom, you you like to tell the story of how, you know, Lexus, we were looking at how Lexus and um, VW played the game very different. The divergent past, as Sean said. And um, so one of my thoughts is how will Lexus do in the Chinese market? or Toyota, you know, what will their next move be there? Will they stay outside in as they 
move into other geographies is, you know, they haven't gone there yet. And it took them a long time even to get back to Japan in their home market. But, um, but there's, so any, any thoughts around where you, you see the divergent paths going in the future? I'm pretty certain that wherever we see uh, Lexus go, whatever we see Lexus do, it's it's going to be a very market focused, um, you know, research based, uh, considered, strategic move. So I don't know uh, what they will do in China, but I know that if they enter that market, um, it, it 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 won't be on the basis of you know a list of of ten things that the uh, the CEO draws up and says, these are the 10 things we've got to do in the Chinese market. It will definitely be based on understanding um, the market research, the needs and, and, and the, you know, just the desires of the, the Chinese car buyer. But Tom, did you answer the question, by the way, the, the one about the str- strategic um, focus from CEOs and so forth? Did you have an opinion on that as to why that doesn't happen as often as maybe it should? I I, th- I think largely it is. I think it, you you make a good point about um, about background, and I think that what we see it's 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 incredibly stark for us because of the fact that most of the work that we do is with business to business organizations. I think Procter and Gamble CEOs are always very very as a B two C giant and and leaders always. Uh, there's always a background in their executive team of marketing. But I don't think that in B2B that many organizations uh, utilize strategic marketing in the way I guess we would envision it. And so therefore, just the experiences of you know being promoted through the business and seeing how the business is run, um, there is typically another function that is taking a lead that person either comes through that function or sees how business is done in the company where 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 marketing is 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 really just thought of as you know collateral makers and and communications people so i think that's probably the the reason for it yeah um any closing thoughts tom um closing thoughts would simply be that we need more executives and company leaders to embrace strategic marketing. Probably sounds like uh, the hammer seeing everything as a nail since we're a strategic marketing company. But we have seen the success and we've seen um, what happens when uh, B2B companies actually take an outside-in view. They certainly seem to get a huge jump on their competitors because the lack of a strategic marketing focus is is is, is a bit endemic in in B two B. And Sean, I think that what I would take away or the big the big message would be that that you've got to understand your product. Yes, in terms of its competition, but most importantly, importantly in terms of the context that the customers give it, how they make decisions, how they apply value, and it might not might just not be product performance. So, so you, you've got to force yourself to look at the, the environment, 
from the customer's perspective and how they make make value. The product is important, but it can be secondary to a successful product. Mm, that's good. That's good. Uh, so we hope that you've enjoyed uh, this epi- this season three, the marketing case book. Uh, if you want to hear any of them that you might have missed earlier, uh, they're all on the accidentalmarketer.com uh, site. You can click on any of the podcasts or you can go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and, and find them there as well. And we're always open to hearing your thoughts on future uh, uh, projects that we might want to undertake. Thank you very much. 